Hi again, everyone. Welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a longer text today, so we're just going to get straight into it. So Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. When the day came for them to be purified, as laid down by the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, observing what stands written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord, and also to offer in sacrifice, in accordance with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, in Jerusalem, there was a man named Simeon. He was an upright and devout man. He looked forward to Israel's comforting, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had set his eyes on the Christ of the Lord. Prompted by the Spirit, he came to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required, he took him into his arms and blessed God, And he said, Now, Master, you can let your servant go in peace, just as you promised, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all the nations to see, a light to enlighten the pagans, and the glory of your people Israel. As the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, You see this child, He is is destined for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel, destined to be a sign that is rejected, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. There was a prophetess also, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well on in years, her days of girlhood over, She had been married for seven years before becoming a widow. She was now 84 years old and never left the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayer. She came by just at that moment and began to praise God. And she spoke of the child to all who looked forward to the deliverance of Jerusalem. When they had done everything the law of the Lord required, they went back to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Meanwhile, the child grew to maturity, and he was filled with wisdom, and God's favour was with him. So that is our longer reading today. We have 18 verses here from the Gospel of Luke, and let's jump into it by thinking about the context. So basically, Jesus has just been born in Bethlehem. That was the last thing that was narrated, and that brings us into today's section. Now, at the start here, Luke is going to use a kind of a ring structure. So you'll notice that he introduces the purification, then he introduces the presentation, and then he gives the background for the presentation, and then he goes back to the background for the purification. So if you were to kind of diagram out this sentence, uh, what scholars would talk about this being like A, B, B prime, A prime. So the idea seems to be to get the readers to focus on the middle section, which is about the presentation of Jesus. That seems to be why Luke describes it in this way. It's to get his readers to focus on that key repeated theme, which is in the middle, the presentation of Jesus. So verse 22, when the day came for them to be purified, or you can translate this, when the time came for their purification. Now we'll talk more about what this purification is and what it involves, but notice firstly that it says 
there, when it came time for them to be purified. So technically only the mother would need to be purified, but some stricter rabbis considered that a mother during this time, because she was impure, she could be a source of impurity for others that they came in contact with, including her husband. So possibly Luke might be tapping into this tradition. Possibly uh, Mary might have even uh, possibly believed that herself, uh, because we think that that might be Luke's source here. So that might explain why, uh, why Luke here says that they both need to be purified. When the day came for them to be purified, as laid down by the law of Moses, this is going to be a key theme in this first section here, Mary and Joseph are being obedient to the law of Moses. The parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, we'll talk more about what this presentation is, but firstly, let's think about the journey. So, they're going up to Jerusalem from Bethlehem. That's actually a pretty short journey. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only six miles apart, so it was not a significant journey in this case. Now, some scholars believe, think about it, this is the first time Jesus goes to the temple in his life. And so some scholars think this might be a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. So Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, The Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. Well, this is the long-awaited return of God to his temple in a sense. And of course, this comes out uh, more strongly when Jesus cleanses the temple too. Verse 23, they were observing what stands written in the law of the Lord. So in the temple here in Jerusalem, we're going to see them fulfilling two different ritual requirements associated with uh, the birth of Jesus. So the first one that Luke is going to talk about here is uh, the presentation one. So Luke says, every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord. Another translation here would be, every male that opens the womb must be consecrated to the Lord. So according to the law of Moses, every firstborn male had to be brought to the temple once they were a month old or more. So that's mentioned a couple of times. So Numbers chapter 3 verse 40 mentions that. And the idea was that the child, the firstborn male child, was going to be consecrated or set apart to the Lord. And that's specifically mentioned in Exodus chapter 3 verse 12. So the firstborn male of the family is kind of like a priestly figure that has a special consecration to God. Given that there's a parallel here between Mary's song and Hannah's song, and we've talked about this uh, when we looked at Luke chapter 1, it's possible that Jesus' dedication here is sort of mirroring Samuel's dedication. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a lot of similarities here with how Jesus is dedicated at the temple. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, Samuel's parents take him to the temple in order to consecrate him. And Samuel was specifically offered to God to become a priest. And if Luke is trying to set up a parallel here, maybe Luke is trying to imply that Jesus is sort of being consecrated as a priest here by his parents. And that would be interesting. Verse 24. And also they came to offer sacrifice in accordance with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this is a second requirement that they needed to fulfill here. The birth of a male child actually disqualified an Israelite woman from touching any holy object or approaching the temple for 40 days. And after 40 days, the mother then had to go and become ritually clean by offering sacrifice in Jerusalem. This is all specified in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, if you want to have a look at that. Now, in order for the mother to become ritually clean, she needed to sacrifice. The normal sacrifice for that would be a lamb and a bird, 
that's mentioned in chapter 6 of Leviticus 12. But if, they, if a person was poor and they couldn't sacrifice those things, they could instead sacrifice a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's mentioned in verse 8 of Leviticus 12. So the fact that Mary and Joseph can only do a pair of turtle doves and young pigeons shows that they really are quite poor. Now, one of the things, sometimes Catholics uh, get a bit worried about this because why is Mary making herself ritually clean? Because according to Catholic teaching, she doesn't have any sin. Well, the first thing to say is this is a uh, ritual impurity. It's It hasn't got to do with moral sin in any case. Having said that, though, it may well be that that Mary doesn't have any legal impurity or any um, ritual uncleanness either. Still, though, Mary chooses to conform herself to the Mosaic law to avoid scandalizing others. So she's obedient to the law, possibly even when she doesn't have to be. That's similar to how Jesus does not strictly require baptism, but he submitted to it for the sake of others. And that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 3. So there's a couple uh, debate among scholars about whether Mary strictly had to do this ritual or not. Verse 25. Now in Jerusalem, there was a man named Simeon. He was an upright and devout man. So we've just talked about the two different things that they've come to the temple for. Now we're going to see some people that they meet in the temple. Simeon here is called an upright and devout man. That's similar to the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth are both described in chapter 1 verse 6. Luke says he looked forward to Israel's comforting. So, as a faithful Jew, Simeon believed that one day the kingdom of God would come, the Jews would be set free from their bondage of slavery, and then God would re-establish the glorious kingdom of David in Jerusalem, and the Jews would reside with God forever. So, the Jews were looking forward to this establishment of the kingdom of God. Things like this are predicted particularly in the book of Isaiah. So, if you look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1... It says, console my people, console them, says your God. And what is Simeon looking for here? He's looking for Israel's comforting. So maybe it's thinking particularly of that passage from Isaiah. Now, Jews knew that the coming of the kingdom of God was associated with the Messiah. So that helps us understand his reaction when he sees the Messiah here. Now, Luke says something interesting about uh, about Simeon. Luke says the Holy Spirit rested on him. So Simeon is one of these people prior to Jesus who is said to have the Holy Spirit resting on him, even though the Jewish people did not fully understand the Holy Spirit and how it worked. Simeon has the Holy Spirit. The same is said about Mary in chapter 1 and Elizabeth and John the Baptist as well. So apparently the Holy Spirit is working with individual people even before the time of Jesus. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. So apparently the Holy Spirit would speak to Simeon. He'd learn things from the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had set his eyes on the Christ of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit told Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. This was a specific personal promise given to Simeon. Verse 27, prompted by the Spirit, or you can translate this inspired by the Spirit, or even you can translate this in the Spirit, He came to the temple. So once again, the Holy Spirit inspires Simeon to come to the temple on this particular day. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required. So what is it that the law requires them to do with Jesus in order to present him as the firstborn male? It might have involved paying the redemption price of five silver shekels. That's mentioned in Numbers 18 verse 16, although not necessarily. Luke doesn't give us the details here. 
Verse 28, Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God. So Simeon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recognizes that this boy, this young infant child, is the Messiah. He takes Jesus into his arms and he blesses God. So imagine how joyful Simeon would be here. This action of taking the child into his arms and glorifying God, very similar to what Zechariah does in chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 29, he then says a prayer which has become known as the nunc dimittis in Latin. And what that means in English is now you dismiss. This is a prayer that's often prayed by Catholics. It's used every night for the 9pm Compline prayer in the Liturgy of the Hours. It's this exact prayer from Luke chapter 2. So in this prayer, we'll see Simeon extolling Jesus as the crown of God's covenant promises. And what he's doing is he's weaving together various prophecies from Isaiah. He says, Lord or Master, you can let your servant go in peace. Notice that Simeon calls himself a servant of God. That's very similar to the word in Greek. It's a very similar word to what Mary called herself handmaid in chapter 1, verse 38. So he's receiving peace now, just as the angels promised in chapter 2, verse 14. So remember, the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Well, here, Simeon experiences peace. So he's one of these people on whom God's favor rests. Lord, you can let your servant go in peace just as you promised. So Simeon recognizes the Holy Spirit has promised that he will see the Messiah before he dies. Now he realizes that he's seen the Messiah so he can die in peace. Verse 30, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared. So Simeon recognizes that the Messiah will bring salvation, which is specified in Isaiah 40, verse 5. It's in Isaiah 46, verse 13 and Isaiah 52, verses 9 to 10. This actually echoes something Jesus says later in his ministry. Jesus says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. That's in Luke 10, verse 23. So Simeon realizes how blessed he is to see this salvation in the form of the Messiah. Verse 31, For all nations to see a light to enlighten the pagans. So again, Simeon recognizes that when the Messiah comes, he will open salvation to all people, not just the Jews. This is interesting because many Jews had forgotten this in the time of Jesus. But Simeon remembers that the Messiah will be a light to enlighten the pagans. This theme comes out very strongly in Isaiah 49 verse 6, which says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that is apparently said specifically to the Messiah. As the Messiah, Jesus will be the covenant representative of Israel who takes Israel's vocation upon himself and he's going to complete their mission of bringing blessings to the nations. So he really will be a light to the nations in the way that Israel was supposed to be. Even if you go back to the promises made to Abraham, Abraham says, I will make you, uh, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to others. Well, that was the mission of Israel. Now, Jesus is fulfilling that mission as the perfect Israelite. So it's cool when you start to make these connections. Simeon goes on, and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon knows this Messiah will be the glory of Israel and the glory to the rest of the nations as well. Verse 33, as the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him. So Mary and Joseph are marveling at what's coming out of Simeon's mouth here. Remember, Mary and Joseph know that their son will be the son of David. 
And so they probably realize that they're giving birth, uh, that their son is the Messiah, but they don't yet fully understand everything that his ministry will entail. So some of the things that Simeon says really surprise them. Remember that most people at the time of Jesus thought that basically the job of the Messiah was to be a political revolutionary, but that's apparently not the way that Simeon is sort of describing the Messiah here. So that might explain why Mary and Joseph are so surprised. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them. So Simeon is probably an older man. He bless, It's like a blessing of an older Jew to a younger one. And then he said to Mary, his mother. Notice this is specifically said to Mary, not Mary and Joseph. So again, probably inspired by the Holy Spirit, Simeon has a message here for Mary. You see this child, he is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. So what does this mean? It probably means that many of the Jews will be challenged by Jesus' teaching. And in a sense, Jesus will be drawing a line in the sand during his ministry. It will cause people, it will cause the Jewish people to be divided by taking a stand either for him or against him. Many Jews through Jesus' ministry will grow closer to God and they'll progress in the kingdom. But others, like the Pharisees, they will see Jesus as a stumbling block and they will condemn themselves because they reject Jesus. So he really will cause people to stumble or he'll cause people to be glorified in the kingdom, depending on whether they accept or reject him. Again, this is probably not something people would have realized about the Messiah, at least in terms of the Jews. Uh, The Jewish people would have believed that all Jews would accept the Messiah. It would be very obvious that he's the Messiah. But again, that's not the way Simeon is explaining the Messiah. And then Simeon says he is a sign that is destined to be rejected. So Jesus would be a sign from God, says Simeon, but ultimately he's going to be rejected by the Jews. This, again, would be shocking for Mary and Joseph to hear. It's a remarkable prophecy from Simeon, because again, that's not the way the Jews thought about the Messiah. Verse 35, he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul also. So probably this is meant to indicate that Mary will experience deep emotional distress as a result of the ministry of Jesus. And of course, this is most evident at the cross. Her vocation as Jesus' mother involves deep maternal suffering. That's what Simeon says to her. And then Simeon says, A sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. Another translation there would be, Thoughts of the hearts of many may be revealed. So the true inner spiritual state of people will be exposed through the teaching and the actions of Jesus. Many who are held in high esteem by the people of Jerusalem will have their true selves laid bare. So the Pharisees in particular and the other Jewish leaders will have their true selves exposed. And you certainly see that come through in the preaching of Jesus. So really the acceptance or rejection of Jesus will be a sign of one's acceptance or rejection of God. That is what Simeon prophesies here. So that's Simeon. And now Luke is going to introduce a female character. Now Luke often does this. He often pairs males and females together in his gospel. Luke wants to emphasize that the gospel message is for everyone. So verse 36, he says, there was a prophetess also. So what's a prophetess? Well, it's a female who speaks the word of God to others. There were women who played this role in the Old Testament. So Miriam is an example of that. That's mentioned in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Deborah is listed as a prophetess in Judges chapter 4, verse 4. And then Huldah in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. All of those are prophetesses. And you can say that Anna here is continuing in that same line of Old Testament prophetesses. 
there's other female prophetesses in Acts chapter 21, verse 9 too. So it does come up in the New Testament. So she's called here Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. So apparently Anna here was known by the local community as someone who regularly received messages from God and she could interpret God's will for his people. And she's from the tribe of Asher. Now, this is, this is interesting from a historical perspective because the tribe of Asher was a, f- from one of the ten lost tribes. Really, this tells us that the people in the time of Jesus, at least some of them, they did know which of the tribes they came from. So, in that sense, they're not lost, at least not completely lost, because some people from these tribes were still around and some people in the time of Jesus knew that they were descended from one of these ten tribes. So, that's just interesting from a historical perspective. She was well on in years, or you can translate this, she was of great age. And we're going to hear that she's 84 years old, which is actually very rare in that culture. It was fairly rare to get to that age. There might be some significance to this number 84. Why does Luke specifically tell us her age? One theory is that because 84 is 12 times 7, so it's like the number of Israel's tribes times the number of perfection. So perhaps... Uh, Anna here is being depicted as like a perfect Israelite or something like that, although that's just one theory about the meaning of 84. It could just mean, uh, it could just be Luke emphasizing that she's quite an old person, which is remarkable in that culture. Luke says her days of girlhood over, she had been married for seven years before becoming a widow. She was now 84 years old. So she'd been married for seven years, according to Luke. So maybe if we say she got married around the age of 13, which is fairly common in that culture, so she would have been married from the ages of 13 through to 20, around about that, and then she was a widow for the remaining 60 years of her life. So she's been alone for a long time in her life. Some scholars have suggested that if we see Mary representing Israel as a virgin, well then Anna sort of represents Israel as a widow. So it's And, and there are many times in the Old Testament that Uh, Israel is depicted as a widow. So maybe that's sort of uh, what Anna is encompassing here. Verse 37, Luke says, She did not depart from the temple, serving God both day and night with fasting and prayer. So in her widowhood, Anna has uh, dedicated her life to the service of God. Apparently, since her husband had died, she now serves the Jewish people as a whole, and she prays for them and she intercedes for them. It's a remarkable way to spend her widowhood. Verse 38, she came by just at that moment and began to praise God. So as soon as she sees Jesus in the temple, she recognizes him as the Messiah. She has this true gift of prophecy. She sees straight away this is the Messiah. So we can say that she's probably inspired by the Holy Spirit too. And then Luke says that she spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So apparently she doesn't say anything to Mary and Joseph, but maybe after they leave, she goes and tells everyone or tells those in Jerusalem who are awaiting the Messiah. Many people in Jerusalem and the Jews in general, because of the way they interpreted certain prophecies from the book of Daniel, many people were expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were probably expecting the Messiah to set Jerusalem free from the bondage of the Romans and to set up the kingdom of God with Jerusalem as the capital. So it's to these people, the expectant Jews, that Anna now goes and speaks to. And she basically says, I have seen the child Messiah. That's what she says to them, apparently. So that's just a short section there on Anna. And then we get to verse 39. When they had done everything the law of the Lord required... 
So the Old Testament specified various rituals that needed to be done in the temple on the mother and the child. We've talked about those two uh, earlier in verses uh, 22 to 24. Well, Mary and Joseph are both faithful Jews. This has been indicated by Luke four times already. Clearly, Luke wants us to recognize that they're fulfilling the law of Moses. They are responsible, faithful Jews. Despite the travel back and forth to Bethlehem with a young child, it's, it's not easy, but they still are faithful Jews, so they fulfill what's expected of them. And then Luke says they went back to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Now, up until this point, they've been uh, staying in Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born, and that's apparently where they've been for the first 40 days of his life. Now, a lot of critical scholars would say here we have a clear contradiction between Uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, because in Matthew's gospel, the child Jesus spends quite a bit of time in Bethlehem, and then he has to go to Egypt for a couple of years, and then he comes back to Bethlehem. Whereas Luke here says that uh, after 40 days, they went back to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and there's no mention here of spending a couple of years in Egypt. Now, it's not a clear contradiction if we recognize that Luke is just giving us a shortened version because Luke doesn't think it's important to mention the facts about Jesus going to Egypt because it's not important for his audience. Whereas for Matthew's audience, who are very much interested in the way that um, Jewish prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus and the way that Jesus recapitulates the story of the Jews, Matthew does include the information about uh, Jesus spending time in Egypt for a couple of years. So if we put together the two Gospels, the timing here would be that uh, after Jesus here is presented in the temple, they go back to Bethlehem, and then at some point around then the wise men visit, and then after that they go to Egypt, and then they come back to Bethlehem again for a short period of time before eventually settling in Galilee. So this... Uh, Both Gospels do tell us that Jesus spends most of his childhood in Galilee, so they are very much in accord there. And as long as we get that order of events correct, there is no contradiction. Luke just gives his readers the shortened version. Since the young Jesus apparently doesn't do any particular miracles or teachings while he's a young child in Egypt, there's no reason for Luke to include that information. Verse 40, the child Jesus grew to maturity, or you can translate this, grew and became strong. So after Jesus uh, returns to Galilee and grows up there as a child, he grew to maturity. The same thing is actually said of John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 80. The phrase here probably means he reached puberty. He grew up uh, into, into a young man. The next time we hear from Jesus, he is 12 years old. So we'll see that uh, in the next section of Luke. And then Luke finishes here by saying he grew to maturity and he was filled with wisdom and God's favor was with him. So there was something visibly different about Jesus even early on in his life. Clearly, he was filled with wisdom. God's favor was with him. Now, the next section, we're going to see Jesus do something at 12 years old, and that's the famous scene when Jesus returns to the temple as a 12-year-old. You can hear that next section, verses 41 to 51, on the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. See, you might like to go through the podcast archives to find that. Let's now turn to the Catechism. There's quite a few places where this comes up. We're just going to read a few of them. So paragraph 529 is about the mysteries of Jesus' infancy. The presentation of Jesus in the temple shows him to be the firstborn son who belongs to the Lord. With Simeon and Anna, all Israel awaits its encounter with the Saviour, the name given to this event in the Byzantine tradition. 
Jesus is recognized as the long-expected Messiah, the light to the nations, and the glory of Israel, but also a sign that is spoken against. The sword of sorrow predicted for Mary announces Christ's perfect and unique oblation on the cross that will impart the salvation God had prepared in the presence of all peoples. So that paragraph of the Catechism actually summarizes what happens in this scene with Simeon and Anna. Paragraph 711 is about expectations of the Messiah. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Two prophetic lines were to develop, one leading to the expectation of the Messiah, the other pointing to the announcement of a new spirit. They converge in the small remnant, the people of the poor who await in hope the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. So the Catechism here references this, with Simeon and Anna being examples of the poor, humble people who are awaiting the true redemption of Israel. Paragraph 583 is about Jesus' relationship with the temple. Like the prophets before him, Jesus expressed the deepest respect for the temple in Jerusalem. It was in the temple that Joseph and Mary presented him 40 days after his birth. And then the paragraph goes on from there. Paragraph 695 is about anointing. The Virgin Mary conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit, who, through the angel, proclaimed him the Christ at his birth and prompted Simeon to come to the temple to see the Christ of the Lord. So again, Simeon is mentioned here in the Catechism as someone who is prompted by the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 149 is about Mary. Throughout her life and until her last ordeal when Jesus, her son, died on the cross, Mary's faith never wavered. She never ceased to believe in the fulfillment of God's word, and so the church venerates in Mary the purest realization of faith. And there the reference, of course, is to uh, how Mary will have a sword piercing her own soul. Paragraph 618 is about our participation in Christ's sacrifice. In fact, Jesus desires to associate with his redeeming sacrifice those who were to be its first beneficiaries. This is achieved supremely in the case of his mother, who is associated more intimately than any other person in the mystery of his redemptive suffering. So lots of great stuff in those catechism references. You can see those in the show notes. And we'll finish it there for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.